0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning we talk about developing our blue economy. A good portion of that is happening on the Big Island. The Natural Energy Laboratory in Kailua-Kona has been a bright spot during this recent economic downturn. Innovation is nurtured here, and the recent award of a $1.8 million federal grant will help an aquaculture pilot project expand over the next several years. We talked to Laurent Sambardier, deputy director at the Natural Energy Laboratory of Hawaii Authority, also known as NELHA.
1: To us, it's it's super exciting because it means that uh, we are going to be able to continue our pilot project on developing an aquaculture accelerator here at NELHA, where in our third year of a three-year project, um, which we consider the pilot aquaculture accelerator uh, project. It is run by Hatch uh, here at Nelha, but Hatch also has actually offices in Singapore and in Norway, but they, the three-year project is coming to the end, and this EDA fund is going to allow us to continue that for another um, four years.
0: And so what type of aquaculture are we talking about?
1: Well, the interesting part is they are looking at aquaculture in the broad sense, so not just you know growing out species for food supplies, but also all of the technologies that are associated and tied to aquaculture. And so that would include developing sensors, developing on the engineering side methods to deliver feed to the various species that are being grown, and also things like big data. So uh, looking at remote monitoring technology, and also on the pharmaceutical side, developing uh, methods to uh, breed animals to get superior species.
0: And that involves what, adding seaweed to the diet of livestock? So, you know, I was referring to
1: aquaculture and Hatch generally as um, all the various different projects that are under the umbrella of aquaculture. Uh, I think the the, um, uh, the project that you're referring more specifically is Symbrosia, which is one of the Hatch businesses um, that participated in the cohort, not this last year, but the year before. And, yes, they are developing algae as a... Feed additive for livestock, and it has been shown to reduce methane emissions from cattle up to 80%.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So, yeah, there, I mean, there's really then all these uh, developments uh, in the broad field of aquaculture.
1: That is correct. I mean, I think investors are taking note, and there are specific funds now that are just for aquaculture. And that's a little bit new than what was available, say, 10 years ago. And so that is uh, definitely a sector that's up and coming. And Hawaii is um, definitely taking a part in in that. For one thing, we have had experience in the past. We've had a couple of success stories with projects like uh, um, SPF, Specific Pathogen Free Shrimp Broodstock. And uh, we're building on the successes that Hawaii has had in the past and hoping to have more success stories in this area.
0: Now, I'm trying to remember, was it uh, at Nowhow where there was a company that was uh, doing seahorses? That is correct. That is one of the companies that has been here for
1: possibly 20 years, somewhere between 15 and 20 years. Yeah,
0: I'm dating myself. Okay.
1: Yes, that's uh, a super interesting project and pretty much uh, very unique in the world. Uh, They do eco tours, and so folks can actually visit and see a real live um, farm operating for seahorses. And that is the type of company that is more geared to the conservation side of aquaculture. We also have companies here that are more on the commercial, so um, growing fish, for example, growing abalone. Um, All of those areas are... Uh, have proven to be very resilient during this past pandemic and I guess still ongoing pandemic most of our companies are still in operation here actually all of them we haven't lost a single one and you know they may not have been doing as well um, because revenue I think has slowed down for almost everybody but they are now being able to pick back up, and the fact that they were able to stay, as opposed to the service industry where businesses have had to shut down, these companies are much more resilient. And not only that, we've actually gotten seven new projects since March 2020 when the pandemic first started.
0: Wow! So really, I mean, you're a, a kind of a proving ground for a lot of different industries, and and you know where. There's been lots of talk about diversifying our economy and not being so reliant uh, on just a few things. I guess the, the light over at, at Nelha has been pretty bright. Well, we you know we try our best here,
1: and um, you know we do have 200 more acres um, on the property, and so there there's room there's room for more projects, and uh, the you know the thought and the hope is that uh, hatch. Uh, Culture Accelerator will be attracting more companies. Um, this year, they're uh, focusing on a Hawaii uh, innovation studio, and the concept, concept there is to attract and help develop very early stage companies and develop them so that they can then be ready for a more traditional uh, cohort in an accelerator. And the idea is to focus on Hawaii, homegrown ideas and homegrown companies. And this is the uh, focus that they have this year. Their deadline is actually June 4th, I believe. So um, if anybody has a good idea, they should definitely hop onto their HatchBlue.com website.
0: So the idea is that you really are an an incubator, right? I mean, you're nurturing these startups um, in, in these different areas.
1: We certainly are. And one challenge with the aquaculture uh, sector is that sometimes, especially if you're working with species that may perhaps need a little bit longer um, to you know, do proof in the ground and growing the species out, it doesn't always fit in a traditional three-month cycle for a traditional accelerator cohort. Uh, You sometimes need to take a little bit more time, and this new grant is actually going to allow us to expand and extend um, the work that Hatch has done by having sort of a follow-up program so that people can stay a little bit longer and um, really um, work on their proof of concept.
0: And then you've been exploring other things uh, off the Big Island. I know you folks were at one time looking at uh, the Mackay Pier and... What could be done there?
1: Right. Well, I think because this is a resilient sector, or at least has proven to be a resilient sector for Hawaii, we um, had been asked to look at the possibility of the Makai Pier on Oahu and um, looking at how that might be developed in the blue ocean economy, um, accelerator, and we, we we looked at that very carefully. Have done um, a lot of um, background research on it. Um, it may not happen this year, and it may not be Nelha who ends up um, taking the lead on this. Um, but it is certainly an opportunity that's there. You know. Uh, the Big Island is not the only place where aquaculture can take place. And, in fact, there is a bit of aquaculture already on many of the other islands um, in Hawaii. But um, that could certainly be expanded on. And the Makai Pier was um, one area where uh, perhaps that, that could happen. Uh, maybe not so much for aquaculture, but for the blue economy in general and maybe on more on the engineering side.
0: And how long has Nelha been around? Uh, so Nelha was formed in
1: 1974. So it's been a little while. Okay. It was you know, really visionary at the time, and we continue to, to do the good work here and um, hope that this will really prove to be a very good investment in the long run for Hawaii.
0: That was Laurent Simardier, Deputy Director at the Natural Energy Laboratory of Hawaii Authority, also known as NELHA. This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time to test you on your history with our backyard quiz. Oh, Anniversaries sometimes jog our memories of similar events. Three years ago this week, lava overran the tiny coastal community of Kapoho on the east side of the Big Island. In early May uh, 2018, Kilauea's east rift zone began erupting, and by the end of the month, the river of lava was on a direct path toward Kapoho. On June 4th, the lava entered the ocean, taking with it several hundred homes and creating over 500 acres of new land along the coastline. That event reminded us of another coastal village smitten by Madame Pelle nearly 100 years ago. A small fishing village on the other side of the island along the Kona coast was also buried by lava. It sat just north of Miloli'i and was uh, far from any well-traveled roads. Access to it was easiest by canoe and later by steamship. Mail and supplies were delivered there on a regular basis, keeping it in touch with the rest of the world. In April of 1926, the red glow of an eruption from Mauna Loa's southwest rift zone warned residents that the village uh, warned the, the residents of the village that lava was headed their way. The molten rock reached the ocean on April eighteenth, nineteen 1926, destroying the harbor and the entire community. So for today's backyard quiz, can you tell us the name of that long-lost fishing village? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
2: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neread Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nereadhawaii.com.
0: Sustainable aquaculture, it is something that Eric Schwab knows something about as he led the National Marine Fisheries Service under the Obama administration. He joined the group Environmental Defense Fund, where he is now Senior Vice President of Ecosystems and Oceans. He talked to us this morning about how to do aquaculture right.
3: So from our perspective, uh, finfish aquaculture produced in the ocean can be an important part of that solution. It can be obviously a great companion to the wild capture fisheries that are so important, and you know, and popular in Hawaii.
0: Well, you know, there's been this big push to really develop aquaculture here, you know, with the backyard tilapia setups. But what do consumers need to know and, and, you know, what do the the regulatory agencies need to consider as we try and become more resilient for the future?
3: The first thing you need to understand is across the country, you know, if you eat seafood, chances are fin fish aquaculture is already on your plate. And maybe a little less so in Hawaii, but across the country, you know, 85% of the seafood we eat is imported and more than half of that is farmed. So it is already a part of the diet. Unfortunately, it's coming from other places predominantly. So we feel like that um, there is an opportunity um, to grow our domestic aquaculture industry, both to enhance seafood security in places like food security generally, in places like Hawaii, but also to improve sort of our control over the quality of the food that is being delivered to the American consumer and being put on the plate. You know, what uh, what we – You know, import from other places um, comes from, you know, through a lot of different sources, and there, there is not any kind of uniformity in, you know, quality or the underlying sort of environmental performance of those operations. So the last thing we know is that, you know, the U.S. can be a world leader in ensuring that the right practices are in place to ensure environmentally safe and environmentally sustainable food production in this case in fish aquaculture in federal waters.
0: Well, you know, it's funny that you you talk about that because my husband just came home from the market, uh, and this past week he said, you know, I was just kind of astounded to see, you know, where all this fish came from, Ecuador and India and the Philippines. And, and he said, I just hadn't ever seen so much from so far away right. in one store. So it caught his attention.
3: Yeah, and, and, and true even in Hawaii, isn't that amazing?
0: What's on the horizon? How do we then develop these industries in our waters?
3: Well, so there's growing interest, obviously, you know, around the country in inshore aquaculture opportunities. Many of those are associated with shellfish and seaweed growth. As you think about finfish thin opportunities in open ocean systems, a lot of the attention turns to federal waters. And while It is certainly possible to undertake an operation in federal waters now. There is no national guidance that streamlines the business process, and there is no national guidance that establishes performance standards from environmental perspectives. So our goal is to ensure that, number one, we create that national guidance, and that, number two, it reflects cutting-edge technology, cutting-edge practices, cutting-edge science in ways that ensure that, you know, the U.S. is a model for sustainable marine aquaculture. And we we produce fish in ways that don't have negative effects on surrounding ocean waters.
0: We just heard from the Natural Energy Lab just about a project that they're developing and the technology that goes along with it, you know, with big data and sensors, remote sensors, uh, and how you use that technology to make the industry grow.
3: Right. So environmental sensors are certainly a part of the solution on cages, you know, where you can measure effluent quality. Um, You can fine-tune, you know, feed systems, many of which are automated. You can ensure, you know, awareness of surrounding environmental conditions so that you can manage the site as conditions change. You know, a lot of these cage systems can be elevated up or down in the water column based on, you know, storm system approaches and other sort of risks. All of those can be a part of the solution, yes.
0: What is out there on the horizon as far as like legislation? Well,
3: there's already discussion in Congress about a national aquaculture piece of aquaculture legislation. We feel like we can advance a congressional solution that really reflects cutting-edge science and technology that sets up a reg- regulatory structure that specifically articulates the standards to ensure that offshore aquaculture produce proceeds in a safe and sustainable manner you know so it's really key that we do this but it's also even more important that we do it right
0: and what can local governments do well local governments are
3: already obviously regulating inshore activities um, so they have a lot to say already about siting about management systems about species you know mixes and that sort of thing Um, obviously they can also be in a really strong position to you know promote compatible onshore facilities that support you know these commercial operations that are emerging in you know hawaii and around the country
0: is there anything in the administration's uh, infrastructure bill that would uh, do anything to help develop the aquaculture industry
3: I think there are, there's, uh, you know, obviously focus on sort of building capacities in coastal communities in a lot of different ways. And I think, you know, some of the, you know, some of the infrastructure, you know, technology infrastructure, you know, some of the shoreside infrastructure that might emerge, you know, at, you know, at state and local levels through use of the infrastructure bill can be a, an important companion to the, you know, these offshore economic opportunities.
0: And we often hear about how uh, regulations kind of hold back businesses from developing. Uh, how are you looking at that?
3: So I think in this case, it's the lack of regulation that might be hold, holding back the businesses from developing. You know, the the investment required to, to undertake a successful operation depends on some regulatory certainty, depends upon the ability to get permits in a timely fashion, and depends upon – the establishment of performance standards that level the playing field for all operators so we really think that you know by doing this the right way the process can be streamlined and some certainty can be introduced for businesses at the same time that we raise the environmental performance standard across the industry
0: and we often hear about the need for good data and good science any more that we need to be doing there
3: well there have been already tremendous advances in you know the kinds of technologies that we that, that are applied, the kinds of practices that are that are put in place. You know, we talked about some of the cage technologies. We talked about you know some of the monitoring systems that could be utilized in those cage systems. You know, the great advances in like feed ratios and 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 you know potential for diet enhancements so that we can maximize fish production and minimize you know the the use of lower species. You know that, that often are turned into fish meal. I mean, all of those things. You know not only can we continue to advance around but we can take experience that has experiences that have already been developed in one place and apply them in other places even make them the new standard
0: is there anywhere across the globe that we should be looking at you know as a model the the demand for for seafood is is just going to grow right that's what the projection is
3: i would say that we can look around the world and see and and take elements of best practices from various places. I mean lots of lots of different parts of the world depending upon, you know, target species are refining, you know, feed mixes. They're refining, as you know, we already discussed, you know, cage technologies where they're refining, you know, siting decisions and, you know, the ability to environmentally monitor. I'm not sure that I could as we stand here today, point to like one place that's put it all together. I think the advantages is, you know, the US has led the world in sustainable wild capture fisheries approaches, we think that, you know, the U.S. can put this all together and establish a national standard that can become the model that you might be speaking to there.
0: And, you know, you've visited Hawaii. Knowing what you know about our demand for, uh, for uh, seafood, um, I don't know, what do you think is our biggest challenge?
3: Well, first, I've had seafood, lots of good seafood in lots of places, no place better than in Hawaii. You know, obviously, I think there is a, uh, you know, discriminating consumer there. You know, hopefully, I think there's a, a, you know, a more aware consumer. Uh, So, obviously, I think one, one challenge is to sort of meet that expectation on the part of consumers, both for sort of taste, provenance, you know, underlying sort of you know production standards. Uh, you know, I, you have a lot of ocean. I think there are, you know, there are important siting decisions that need to be made about where best to place them. Uh, you know, these opportunities not only so as to sort of like minimize environmental impact, but also to, you know, to minimize disruption to other traditional ocean activities like commercial fishing. So, a number of challenges. Those are a couple.
0: Okay, and then just what about globally as our demand uh, across the the world just grows? Yeah, and I
3: think one of the other important things there is to recognize that, you know, demand for, you know, for, for food grows. And, you know, as we think about the input costs to food, seafood is frankly the most environmentally friendly animal protein we can produce. You know, when you think about it in contrast to, you know, a lot of land-based, you know, animal production, you know, seafood, if done right, can be um, pretty environmentally efficient.
0: That was Eric Schwab, former head of the National Marine Fisheries Service, now with the Environmental Defense Fund, talking about the need to raise awareness about sustainable aquaculture. For links to learn more, head to our website later today.
2: Support for HPR comes from the Arne and Ruth Worchick Charitable Fund, also supporting Friends of the Library's Kona and its Masters of Library and Information Sciences scholarships. folkhawaii.com With majorities in many state legislatures, Republicans are drawing electoral maps to give them a big boost in the midterms and beyond. Can Democrats in Washington stop them?
3: Whether we have fair maps for a decade or wildly gerrymandered maps for a decade depend on what happens in Congress over the next few weeks. I'm
2: Anthony Brooks, that's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at two, following the world.
0: It's now time for our reality chat with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Today, reporter Anita Hofschneider has a snapshot on the embattled labor department. Good morning, Anita.
4: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: You know, every time I read or do a story on the labor department, I feel so bad for the people that are applying, and I feel bad for the people that are processing those unemployment claims. I just wish I could wave a wand and make it all better.
4: I know. Me too, Catherine. Me too.
0: So what can you tell us? What's the latest?
4: So, you know, as I started reporting on this story, I was wondering, you know, what had changed since um, the pandemic hit and um, all of these people, you know, 240,000 people at their their peak had filed for unemployment claims. Actually, some of those may not have been unique people. It was 240,000 unemployment claims were filed. Anyways, the number of claims has gone down. It's about 150,000 now. And the unemployment rate has dropped, but a lot of people are still having problems reaching the office and talking to people and working through their claims, whatever their issues might be. So, some really interesting numbers I was given was that every day the unemployment call center receives 25,000 calls from about 6,000 unique numbers. So, people are calling multiple times per day. And of those, about 800 calls are actually answered. So even though thousands of people are calling, only about 800 people per day are actually reaching somebody. And this is really frustrating for people. I mean, it's been an issue since last year when the daily number of calls was about 40,000. And even though um, the... Department of Labor has done a lot to try to uh, reach this demand and, and adjust its processes to make it more efficient. There still is a glut of people trying to reach um, the office who just aren't able to get through.
0: Well, I remember the day that they shut the doors down there. I was down there talking to people who were so frustrated because they couldn't, you know, get through on the phone lines and went down there in person. I mean, there were people from, I think, Macy's, you know, there were folks that were tied to the Travel industry, and those offices are still closed. You can't go and talk to anybody in person.
4: Yeah, and that's another issue. That's another reason why people are calling constantly is because they they can't just go in person. And the director of the Department of Labor Industrial Relations, she told me that they are trying to figure out how to open. Um, she didn't want to give me an exact. day because they're still in the process of figuring that out but that's super frustrating to people i noticed that today some of the comments on my article were saying you know i can go to the driver's license office and i can do that in person so why can't the unemployment office open or some people were saying you know they expect us to go back to work because there's a a recent work requirement um in terms of work search requirement and so people are expected to go back to work and oftentimes that means in-person work but yet they can't go to the unemployment office and and get money that they believe that they're owed
0: And, you know, your article actually, um, underscores a point that a lot of this is causing a lot of mental health stress.
4: It really is, and as you mentioned, it's it's a challenge for both the people who are trying to get their checks as well as the staffers themselves. So one thing that was really interesting was the head of the unemployment office was telling me how um, they actually staffed up their call center to almost 90 employees um, at the end of March, early April, but that's actually back down to 55 now that we're in June. And I was asking why, and she said one of the reasons why there's been so much attrition is because it's really hard for people at the call center to take those calls every day and live Listen to these stories of people who are just desperate and um, oftentimes you know they're not able to help them because she pointed out you know unemployment is not a need-based program you have to qualify there's a lot of rules sometimes people think they qualify but they actually don't and so that is really hard on the people who are you know working to try to help is cuz they can't actually help everybody um, and they have to deal with that frustration of the people and then on the other hand you have people who are calling in 50 75 times a day and they you know they're telling me that they are just desperate, frustrated, um, exhausted. They're they're feeling like they aren't being heard and that even the you know they were saying they're so glad this article is coming out because even the media they feel like has written less about this recently and so they want us to know it's a real an issue
0: and you also reached out to the crisis hotline too
4: yeah that was interesting i um was talking to the department of health about their 24-hour crisis hotline um, because i thought it was interesting that the department of labor's um unemployment number was limited it has very limited hours you know basically workday hours whereas the crisis hotline is open 24 7 but one difference is that um, when I was talking to the unemployment office director she was saying it's even if they were open all night they wouldn't necessarily be able to hold um, help more people because they have limited number of staffers who really know the system and can actually effectively help people and so she was saying you know it's not like necessarily that having extra hours will will help what they need are more staffers who are very experienced and know the system and unfortunately you know that takes time
0: yeah, and hopefully uh, as things uh, relax and people are called into work that uh, they can get some relief there but thank you so much anita
4: thank you for having me
0: that was reporter anita hofschneider with today's reality check to read the full story visit civilbeat.org Pandemic restrictions are being relaxed as vaccination rates rise and COVID cases drop. That means we are starting to get back to normal. But lots of changes on the art scene, including one that affects the Hawaii Symphony. HB arts and uh, culture reporter Noe Tanigawa joins us to fill us in. Good morning, Noe. Hey, good morning, Catherine. Yeah, well, you know, Hawaii Symphony really didn't let
5: up through the COVID period. They switched over to digital and they have been having, um, you know, weekly actually live, you know, talk story sessions um, from Hawaii theater for for weeks now. but yes, you're right. It is a ramp up and they've really got uh, finally got something real going. They've been thrilled with the growth over the last year. I just talked to you know Dave Moss, the executive director over there. He started, I believe March 10th, 2020. <laughs> it's been quite a time. He said they doubled the amount of individual donors that they had last year. Great, and he said, hey, "I know. How's that? You know, how did he said? How do they do it? Well, he said they ask for donations in meaningful ways, and when you ask, what that means in this community, part of it is tapping into that strong community of people here who have played in bands and orchestras in school. They really love that experience. And you know, touching on that is super fruitful. And then Ma said that. Um, they were turning this community, um, this organization over to the community. And I I asked him exactly what he meant by that.
2: Well, first of all, when we got outside the concert hall, when we started doing our performances on the streaming platform through our partnership with the Hawaii Theater, when we did the broadcast on KITV with the Ballet Hawaii, which was nominated for an Emmy, actually, that production, um, and our performance with uh, Ron Artiz on Hawaii News Now, in total, we were in over 300,000 households in the past year, which is just monumental. Um, and, you know, we used to define success as being 2,000 people inside the Blaisdell, and we're learning that there's so much more access we can provide to the symphony through just being there and being present in new ways.
5: Well, they're performing at the Shell now. Yeah, mm. that's the big news for them. <laughs> and that's this weekend. So exciting. Yeah. This weekend's going to be the third of the series. And the series is going to run through August, actually. But um, it's it's really cool. I mean, they pressed hard to be right there as the reopening uh, of the city was ramping up, you know, with some outdoor performances. It makes so much sense. And contemporary local composer Michael Thomas Fomay is kind of linking the first um, in the series here. He's got a piece called Full Metal coming up. But the um, featured piece this time out is Florence Price. Um 1933, first American woman to have her music performed by a major orchestra. We're going to be hearing uh, her symphony number four. I thought you might like to check it out a little bit.
0: Sounds really interesting. It does, right? Historical and cultural references, a little black experience in there,
5: you know, in that symphonic form. So could be great. I mean I think so. Fun to experience all of that under the stars. And Raya Helm is going to be there. Also Kanoi Miller is going to hula. Oh nice. On the shell stage. I know. Uh, the shell's gonna look a little different, Catherine. Well uh, there's now a permanent <laughs> scaffolding attached to the inside of the shell you know, right over uh, those those kind of elegant crescent-shaped tiers that were in there. Mm-hmm.
6: Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, that's permanent? The,
5: yeah.
0: Permanent scaffolding?
5: <laughs> it is. It's it's permanent. It's for lighting and, and potential sound effects that may be necessary in the future. Hopefully the problem with the bird droppings from that scaffolding will be addressed by then. But it's going to be uh, really a terrific night. It's... Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I think they're doing Sheridan Starlight series through the summer. So thankful. You know, have you have you been there, Kathy? Have you done it? Maybe sat on the lawn or in the chair? Yes, there many moons concert.
0: ago. <laughs> many moons ago. But are I you know, going? I Been a while,
5: right? Yeah. Are you going? <laughs> this time out, they're um, doing COVID restrictions, of course, mm. and um, you know. So I'm going to get a pod on the lawn for Saturday night. It's eighty dollars for up to four people in a pod, so like twenty bucks a piece, I guess. Um, tickets at myhso.org if you're interested in that.
0: Okay. And then what else is happening on the art scene? Well, you know what? First First Friday, if oh, yes. you
5: have time, in Chinatown. <laughs> Base bookshop there. Um, Sofia Enrique, she's a Mexican-American artist. She's working in Manila now. Really... Um, kind of paisley and line drawing and street art imagery all blended together. And she had some really gorgeous things in Coachella 2019. This is just the kind of energy that could be fantastic right now. She's opening Friday, tomorrow, at a base on Newton. Nu'uanu. Arts and Letters is going to have some, you know what, they've got a rare book sale going on. It's going to be the hard-to-find and out-of-print local titles at Arts and Letters in Native Books in there. (laughs) Okay. I don't have to say more to a lot of people on that one. And the Downtown Arts Center, also in Uwano, art collectors Marianne Long and Robert Mace are showing new work by some of the most bankable artists here. I mean, Satoru Abe, Rima mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, how many opportunities are you going to get a chance to really, you know, purchase and look at work by these people? It's, it's really going to be super. And Mark's Garage is going to have live music.
0: Okay, so... The pent up demand to see uh, arts <laughs> in person, uh, we have that opportunity with First Friday. Thank you so much, Noe. Hey,
3: thank
0: you, Catherine. We have been chatting with HPR's Noe Tanigawa. Find her stories on HawaiiPublicRadio.org. <laughs> For today's Backyard Quiz, we're remembering a small but significant fishing village along the South Kona Coast that was destroyed by lava in 1926. According to Edward Wingate, a U.S. geological survey engineer, he and his team were mapping the summit of Mauna Loa along the 12,000-foot elevation level on April 10th of that year when they were awakened at 1.45 in the morning by a series of earthquakes. By 3 a.m., they found themselves bathed in the reddish glow of lava spouting along the Mauna Loa Rift Belt just below the summit crater. Six days later, the lava flow encroached upon this tiny coastal community. Residents were able to evacuate via the ocean, thanks to the Red Cross paddling canoes back and forth to nearby Milo Others living in the surrounding area gathered at a distance to take in the sight of a river of lava 20 feet high and more than 500 feet wide. While some describe it as frightening, others said it was truly awesome watching the lava sweep aside all obstructions in its path. On April 18th, it took the entire village. If you're into the Big Island history or related to family who once lived in the area, then you know we are talking about Ho'opuloa. And uh, thanks to Larry Rose from Kealakakua for suggesting this backyard quiz. And congrats to Bobby from Volcano, you got it right. If you have an idea for a quiz, please send it to us. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our Talkback line 808-792-8217.
2: Support for the conversation comes from YWCA of Kauai, supporting the Kauai Pride Parade, featuring art and live music, welcoming decorated vehicles for the drive through experience, this Saturday, 9 to 10.30 a.m., ywcakauai.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists.
0: Hi, I'm Diane Hennessy-Powell, author of the ESP Enigma. Next time in New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the science behind psychic phenomena.
2: Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for H.P.R. comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the new museum-wide exhibition Joyful Return on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at HonoluluMuseum.org.
0: Hawaiian sake musician Patrick Lindeza has a new album entitled Far Away. It didn't get the usual fanfare of a CD release party last April. That's because COVID changed the way musicians did business. No parties, no touring or playing for live audiences. During the pandemic, Landeza found himself grounded on the continent for a year, unable to visit our islands. But with an increase in vaccinations and a decrease in COVID cases in Hawaii, he says things are looking up. Here's a cut from the album entitled Berkeley Bounce. Conversation's Lillian Song caught up with Lendeza, who was among the first musicians to appear on our show in our tenure history.
7: Welcome back to the conversation. It's been a while, but since we were last on the show back in 2012, you've been very busy. In 2013, you received the Nahoku Hanohano Award in the Hawaiian Slack Key Album of the Year category. And then in 2019, you received the Kihualu Foundation Legacy Award in Hawaiian Slack Key Music. And this year... You've been nominated for the same category, which is the Hawaiian Slack Key Album of the Year. So congratulations.
6: Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Lily. And you make me sound so important.
7: There's other aspects of your life as well. You're a teacher. And then during COVID, you said you started a business.
6: I started a poke business, a poke delivery business, because here we just have poke bowls. And so, uh, you know, everybody, oh, no, for poke, I can't travel can't play music, I can't tour. So um started a uh delivery business and you know different ways, yeah. If you mm-hmm. cannot play music to share your aloha, then you, you utilize your other talents and I just love to cook. And that's that's how that's how you do it.
7: And a lot of us are now just kind of feeling that twenty twenty one is a more optimistic year. Getting the vaccine, people are traveling again. And for you how were you dealing with COVID? Because you had an album far away in the works.
6: Right. So far away, you know, we recorded a while ago, but all of my tours were canceled. So, you know, in April 2020, we had the CD release plan. We had the, the tours planned. And because of COVID, we had to cancel everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and then finally, uh, we decided, okay, let's release it, you know, during um we're gonna release it during Christmas time. Uh, let's just do an online release, and oh my gosh, you know, it's been such a positive response. But the whole theme of the album is home, mm-hmm. and you know, lillian I'm I'm born and raised Berkeley, California, island of Berkeley, California. You know, yeah. um, but my mother is from Hoolehua, you know, Molokai, and my father came from Kahuku, mm-hmm. so. Um, I've always battled with identity and, and home. And, and, you know, as we ended Asian Pacific Islander Month, I mean, you know, am I, am I Asian or am I Pacific Islander? Am I both? Who am I? So it's that identity and the music is what grounds me. And um, just been blessed to have these amazing teachers. Uh, and so the theme of the whole album is that whole notion uh, of home uh, and featuring songs. Uh, that was written for um, King Kalakaua uh, by, by his wife, the queen. And, you know, we know that he had passed here in San Francisco. So that's the tie to that song, Hele Aoi Kaliponi, or Kaliponi. Kaliponi, um, you know, speaks about a man going to uh, San Francisco or to the mainland and then asking his wife, hey, honey, I'm going there. What would you like me to bring you? And um, and then uh, another, the theme or, or the, the title track, you know, is called Far Away. And that's a song that um, my my teacher, my mentor, the late, great Dennis Kamakahi composed um, because he missed his wife. He was on tour, and he missed his wife, and he, he wrote it in my backyard, you know? And so, um, you know, it just means a lot. It really, the music, uh, the CD, and just being able to play again really means a lot and I cannot tell you how excited I am to return back to Oahu and not only just returning back to Oahu, yeah, but being at the Hawaii Theater and that's exciting.
7: I know people are coming out of their caves again so it's going to be live music at the Hawaii Theater. You will be on stage but for audiences, what is it going to be like?
6: It is Moonlight Melee. It is a series that they have uh, and it is all virtual and people can log in to the uh, Hawaii theater website or Facebook site and they can, they can just tune in there it's at three o'clock. So I think it's going to be pretty cool.
7: Nice. Can tell you're really looking forward to this gig. It's just exciting. And, and just to
6: be able to be on that stage. Yeah. Wow. Um, it's just for me, uh, something that's extremely special so I'll be joined by Kupoa from Kauai. They'll be flying in that morning as well, too, uh, to join me on stage. Kellen Pike produced the CD of Kupoa, And also we'll have our amazing hula dancer, Ms. Brooke Mahelani Lee, uh, my dear friend. And so we're just looking forward uh, to Sunday. I'm looking forward to seeing all of my friends.
7: What a wonderful group of talent, all together on one stage, and you get to call them your friends. But let's backtrack. Tell me more about your friendship with Brooke.
6: Oh, my God. Girl, I met Brooke in 97 at the Hollywood Bowl. And then um, it was through Dennis Kamakai. And I'm like, Uncle, you mean we're going to meet Miss Universe? Because We're not only just going to meet Miss Universe, we're going to hang out with her. I was like, shut up. No. So many people. And Kili Ra show was there. I mean, you know, it was he was the headliner at the Hollywood Bowl. And then that's when I met her backstage. I'm like, and then we became, we became friends, and then I wrote a song for her, and then they used it, for um, they were going to use it for the Miss Universe pageant, and then it got pulled, and then they used it for um, the Aloha Brook, which is her her goodbye special. It was great. Oh. oh, and then how's this, Lillian? You ready? So her father is was from Molokai, and her father would walk my mother to school, when they were children. Come back. That's crazy. Oh wow! Like, and so we're small so close. I mean, we're small very world. close. Is
1: that crazy? That is. So That's crazy.
6: It's crazy. Molokai is like, so okay. small. So okay. anyway, <laughs> I can't wait to go back to Molokai as well too. You know, I,
7: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
6: I can't. I can't wait.
7: It's like your heritage. It's who you are, and yeah. it's like how you've been able to, even though, like you say, you were born. You know, you were in Berkeley. But, you know, at the same time, just talking to you, you have, you have the island spirit and you've just got that, you've got that heritage. You've got that lineage, because like you were saying, you hang yeah. out in the backyard with your uncles. And so for you, I mean, is it going full circle? I mean, you studied with Raymond Connie, Cyril Pahinui, Nui, George Kuo, Dennis Kamakahi. Are you teaching? Are you mentoring the next generation of Slacky artists?
6: So my apprentice is coming with me. To, to Hawaii theater. I'm, I'm introducing him. Okay. Holy mackerel. He's spooky. He's amazing. So I had him since he was a freshman in high school, but he would come to my office, yeah? Mm-hmm. And he'd listen to me practice slack key. His name is Justin Fermiza. No connection to Hawaii, Filipino. He plays piano. And so, uh, you know, when he graduated, he's so talented. I mentored him, and then for graduation, I gave him, steel (laughs) guitar and then i gave him lessons with alan akaka and that was it he's done he's an amazing steel player and and not even a year so he'll be joining me on stage at Hawaii theater um and so it's all about friendship because the music uh the the music brings us together and i really really and i really do if anything I, i miss my friends i miss my family I miss, I miss Hawaii.
7: Well, I'm very happy to welcome you back this weekend. And as we come to the end of the interview, why don't you choose a track from your album and we'll play us out on that.
6: How about, uh, I I love this song. Um, It's one of my originals, my latest version, and it's called Home. And as Brooklyn had told me uh, some years ago, Patrick, Never mind what people say. It doesn't matter, you know. Uh, it's Home is wherever you plant your feet. And so, how about home? Even though I'm far, far away from home, I'll never ever feel alone. The island breeze is whispering to me not about the distance between land or sea, but really where you plant your feet. Because home lives in memories and me. Home, home, home. I swear nothing can replace the warmth of your embrace. I said home, home, home. It doesn't matter where I plant my feet.
0: Eyes will always be with me. Home, an original track by Slacky artist Patrick Lindeza, who'll be playing this Sunday at the Hawaii Theater as part of the Moonlight Melee series streaming live. We'll share links on our website, HawaiiPublicradio.org. That's it for today. Up tomorrow, we talk about the Hawaii film industry and how it has helped our economy during our economic crisis. It is a bright star that is looking brighter. Got a question about the production now underway on your island? Want to know about casting calls or becoming an extra? Call our TalkBack line, 808 792 8217. Email us at talkback at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. Share today's show with your friends and family. Listen back to our past shows by going to the conversation page of our website hawaiipublicradio.org or go to the on-demand section of the HPR mobile app. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.